spoiled. You know, this time of year, that term is just thrown around left and right. Spoiled. Whether it's you're being spoiled by your parents on Christmas or Santa, or in our instance, being spoiled with an amazing college football playoff semifinal matchups. And I think I speak for the three of us when I use that word spoiled. I mean, I think I could say that for almost everyone, that we were spoiled this last weekend with the college football uh, semifinal uh, playoff matchups. Um, Welcome, everyone, though, to Total Sports Talk Beyond the Lights, where I'm your host, Matthew Raritan, and beside me are my awesome co-hosts. First, we got David Street. What's up, y'all? And secondly, we got Ed Smith. Hook'em. And just like that, I mean, Ed still rocking the hook'em. You know, when you are a dedicated fan, a loyal fan, it does not matter what happens with your team. You still support them pretty much to the day you die. And so uh, I respect that with Ed. I respect that with David, especially David going through with everything that's going on with Florida. He still sticks with them because that's what a loyal fan is. But Talking about fans, if you're a fan of uh, college football, just like I said at the beginning of the show, you were spoiled, absolutely spoiled this last weekend. And I really want to actually just jump right into these games. And I want to start with this first game, and that was the Rose Bowl. And that was between the Michigan Wolverines and the Alabama Crimson Tide. And going into this game, even though Michigan was the favorites, but by barely, the talk around town was Alabama's going to win this game. I mean, that's what at least I heard was Alabama's going to win this game probably pretty easily. Um, even though they didn't have the more experienced quarterback, it's Nick Saban we're talking about. I mean, he could bring in the JV team, but it's Alabama and Nick Saban. They're still going to perform. So going into this game, it just felt like the Wolverines were the underdog. They had a lot of drama with the whole Jim Harbaugh situation, the scandal, the sign ceiling. And it just was such a distraction, I felt like. But to me, I was like, you know what? Jim Harbaugh's a professional. And I think that he's going to do an amazing job by just putting on his earmuffs, blocking that out. But he's going to be an example to his team to block that out and to focus on one thing and one thing only, and that's anyone wearing the crimson color. And this was just a weird game from the beginning. I mean, it was mistakes early by Michigan and they were lucky when JJ McCarthy threw that pass literally what was it the first play of the game and interception well the guy was out of bounds got completely lucky I mean I was looking at my buddy who's a Michigan fan we were watching the game together and I said why on earth did they not run it their first play just give it to Blake Corum just you know that's their identity why is he rolling out? Why is he? Why didn't he throw that ball away? But it it just really shocked me by that. But it was the jitters, and who would have thought that this guy, who was the more experienced of the two, and who was in the playoffs last year, had these jitters? But that's only normal. You're playing in the Rose Bowl. You know, we only dream of this when we're younger to go to Pasadena to play in the Rose Bowl. It's probably one of the most memorable. Uh, games that anyone could ever think of, let alone play in. So I will give them that. But it continued to have jitters. We had a muffed punt. And it just looked like, well, Alabama's just going to take advantage of this and they're going to run with it. Well, no. Michigan's defense, they didn't have jitters. They had something else that they wanted to to show and to prove. 
five sacks on Jalen Milroe. Pretty sure in the first quarter alone, but the first half for sure. Five sacks. And when that pocket collapsed, you saw a quarterback that just didn't know what to do, was flustered. And that was almost like the recipe for success for success for that Michigan defense is let's continue to fluster him. But it wasn't going to last for long because Jalen Moreau can use his legs. He's no Jaden Daniels, but he's still great at using his legs. And he showed that uh, throughout the game. But Michigan started to find their rhythm in that second quarter. And they they they, they looked a lot better, uh, at least going into half. All right, they shook that off. But then the third quarter came around and, well, Michigan didn't really know how to play again. It just it, it just seemed odd to me. But you're playing an Alabama team. There's so many teams out there that just don't uh, know how to perform against Alabama sometimes. That's just what they do, and Nick Saban is a genius. I mean, he, there's a reason why he's regarded as the GOAT when it comes to college football head coaches. Um, but Michigan, though, I, I just want to say the end of the game when they had their back up against the wall – I was impressed with J.J. McCarthy and the the calmness he had at the end of the game to really drive them down to tie the game. I, I, I was really impressed with that. I kind of said that going in that I felt like J.J. McCarthy was going to do that, but to actually see it happen is another thing. So by seeing him do that, really put the team on his back, uh, Blake Corum, I really love seeing that too. I mean, he's a senior. He's done. This could have been his last game. But as we know, Michigan decided they wanted to win this game even more. And at the end, that's exactly what they did. Even though it came with some some sweaty palms, I should say, that might just be actually what happened when we saw another muffed punt almost cause a safety. If that would have ended the game, <clears throat> safety – I mean, I, I'm i not even a Michigan fan. I just well, – I would have been pissed. <laughs> I mean, it just – it was just like that. Like, here he goes fumbling this punt, but he recovered it, and it very heads-up play where he was able to get his momentum at least out of the end zone um, and just enough to bring the game to overtime where Michigan scored first and they never looked back. They stopped Jalen Milrow and Alabama Crimson Tide in the red zone, and – well, they are advancing to the college football national championship game. So hats off to Michigan. Um, I am impressed that they were able to rally, that Jim Harbaugh was able to rally his troops to just block out that distraction and that this is Alabama that we're facing. We're not facing the media. We're facing Alabama. And that's exactly what they did, and they pulled out a very well-fought and well-deserving win. So I was impressed with that. And so Michigan Wolverines, you know, uh, I don't have a cap, but, you know, I tip my cap to you. I'm impressed with what you guys did. And I, I'm happy to see you guys get over that hump of losing in the semifinals. You finally won. Now you are going to the national championship game. So uh, great uh, by them. But I'd love to hear, though, what uh, you guys have to say. David, I mean, uh, how did you feel when it came to this game? So I tweeted uh, yesterday that Michigan was clearly the much more better team than Alabama, which meant that Alabama was going to win because, as, as we all know, uh, Coach Nick Saban is a master adjuster. There is nobody better at making second-half adjustments 
than Nick Saban, right? Um, and in the second half, those halftime adjustments were clear, clear as day. Alabama looked like the much better team, and Michigan looked lost. But even still, Michigan was still able to, uh, you know, uh, keep it close, even when they kept sh- shooting themselves in the foot. And uh, Matthew, I'm a little surprised you didn't bring this up, but I guess you figured one of us would, would bring it up. But I want to talk about that last play at the end that Alabama run ran. Everybody is saying that it was a, a horrible play call. I'm actually uh, on the opposite end of that. I don't think it was necessarily the play call. I think it was more so poor execution by the players because when I'm looking at because when I, when I'm looking at that, um, and I thought that uh, what's the dude's name? Um, Dan Brennahan. I I don't remember, but but someone on Twitter I thought made a, made a very good point. Um, if you look if you uh, if you look at what happened. It was a bad snap by by the uh, you know by the center. It, it was a low snap, and it seemed to me, I don't think that was the play they were trying trying to uh, run. Um, I think if you uh, look at the uh, running running back, I think he was expecting a pass from uh, Milrow, and then he kind of threw his hands up in in disbelief when he didn't get the ball. Now, am I possibly re- reading too much into that? Is it possible that he was looking just to make sure that Milrow, you know, was going to go into the end zone? Yes, that's possible. Well, then in that case, then I will say that Milrow should have uh, handed the ball off to the running back there. He was wide open and he had space to uh, get into. But I think because of the bad snap, uh, Milrow just kind of made a panic decision. Um, and I think just, you know, can, can we just stop with the whole, like, Every time a play doesn't go right, it doesn't mean it was it was a bad play call. Like there is such thing as a uh, bad execution. Um, but hats off to Michigan, man. Um, last episode, I kind of ripped on them for uh, being one and six in in uh, in bowl games uh, under uh, under Jim Harbaugh. Um, so hats off to them for uh, getting the uh, monkey off their back. Um, but Ed, what do you what do you think? Do you agree with me? Uh, do you disagree with me with the with the last play call? Well, Seth McLaughlin is the center for Alabama, and he has had problems all season long getting the snap consistently to the same spot in Jalen Melrose's stomach so he can start a play on time. And I've actually seen today where uh, there is a film out there showing that that was supposed to be an RPO with a with an option pass mm-hmm. uh, on that play. But with Milrow having to go down to his high tops to pick it up off the ground, that is making it difficult for that the timing of that RPO to take place. So there is no mesh point. The, uh, the Michigan defender, I forget his name, off to his left, kind of held off that, that side uh, with the pulling guard. So he couldn't necessarily follow that guard into the end zone like he should have or toss it over the top because that player was covered uh, off to the left and that just threw off the into- the whole thing. This is the same center that that caused the Auburn the Auburn 4th and 31 play. You know, by you know, airmailing a snap over Jalen Milrow's head as well as two more earlier in the game. So you're talking about somebody that's been doing this all season long and he still hasn't gotten it, you know, just as consistent as could possibly be from a Nick Saban coach team. I don't believe it, but I saw it and it's, it just boggled my mind. 
Now, well, go ahead. And I think you bring up a, a great point there because, guys, I can't help but notice that lately, the past few years or so, Alabama's offensive lines, they've not been good. Or certainly, at the very least, they have not live, lived up to that Alabama standard. And it's not like they don't recruit dudes up front. We know they do. But, and Ed, I'll go back to you. How come Alabama's offensive line, like how come those guys have just not been as good as we're expect, expecting them to see? It's the malleability of Nick Saban moving his offense away from what Michigan's doing now because that's what Alabama used to do. You know, that that whole we are just going to line up and steamroll over whoever is in front of us. That's not the Alabama offensive line anymore. The Alabama offensive line is working with those dual-threat quarterbacks with uh, with faster receivers and more stuff going downfield as opposed to three yards in a cloud of dust. They can still do that, but not that is not their identity anymore on offense. And Nick Saban, to his credit, he has changed with the times to move to this offense that is – that is really in charge of college football at this point, especially at the upper levels. You know, Michigan is really the the outlier when it comes to that style of offense, as opposed to copying what Alabama is doing. Alabama is running that same mesh point RPO type stuff. You know, you're not going to get that same offense that you're describing, David, when that is the focal point of the offense. That's a great point. And I actually had thought about that earlier, Matthew. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy how things work, but if they got that touchdown in the last play and let's say they won the game, we would never even be talking about their center. We'd be talking about the long snapper for Michigan. I mean, four points because of the long snapper was, I mean that 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 they lost four points because of that one on an extra point, which you you knew once it happened that was going to be crucial. And then on a field goal, it wasn't the cleanest snap either. So, but they 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 won. But you know, I want to really talk about just briefly um, Michigan's defense. It was talked about all year. They had never been tested. This defense, even though they were on the top, you know, they were top five defense. They were never tested. And although Alabama isn't this offensive juggernaut, they're still amazing. And we saw what they did to Georgia. So the fact that they were able to pull this game out and they made Jalen Milroe look uncomfortable, I, I really want to congratulate this Michigan defense on what they were able to accomplish there. As far as that final play goes, you know, I – I knew it was going to happen, but it was a chess match between Jim Harbaugh and Nick Saban. I mean, I, I was able to telegraph it. It was hilarious because it was fourth down play. You knew they were going to both come out and line up, but you knew Harbaugh was going to call a timeout. He had he still had a timeout. You knew he it was just one timeout left, and you knew he was going to call that. So at that point, there's no way Nick Saban was showing what he was really going to run. So there, there goes that chess. You know, there goes that chess move. Then they come back out, and it's essentially swapped on how uh, it was lined up. And well, then Nick Saban calls a timeout. He's like, I don't know about this either. So then it's like, all right, here goes the more chess moves uh, after chess moves, 
and then he comes back out and then you see that poor execution and it doesn't like you said it doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bad play call it was execution because of that snap but it, it's just the chess match after uh chess match between those two ultimately i feel like it just really got in the head of things and Jalen milroe we knew he was gonna run the ball i sat there and i said there's no way that Jalen Milrow gives up this ball. Not that he's a ball hog, but it's like the way that things are, he's keeping this ball regardless. And that's what happened. It could have been because of the bad snap. I don't know. I mean, I'll be interested to listen to it more. Maybe if they have an interview with him, like, all right, so how, what did you see on that last play? Were you going to hand it off, but that snap messed it up? What could it have been? Because I really want to know, but I just felt that just as a fan sitting on the couch, I'm like, there's no way Jalen Milrow gives up this ball. This is him all the way. So, yeah. So, I have a question for you guys. Um, I know, I know this is this is often said before about previous uh, uh, Nick Saban Alabama teams, but it, is this the worst Alabama team he's ever had, aside from the team that went seven and six his first year? Because I think you can make a very strong, strong argument. Like, start with the quarterback. Jalen Milrow was good, but he wasn't. He hasn't been the the uh, difference maker. I say hasn't because I'm pretty sure he's coming back next year. But he hasn't been the di- difference maker the way that Bryce Young and Tua Tagovailoa were. Um, I think Jalen Milrow can certainly get to that level, but he hasn't, you know, been been there yet. The offensive line, like we mentioned before, was not good and really has not been good for a while. Uh, the defense, not bad, but certainly not elite by by any means. And the, and the skill guys, the receivers, uh, you know, running backs, they just haven't really, you know, stood out. And yet Saban was still able to lead these guys to a 12-1 team. So uh, 12-1 season, I mean. So I don't know I don't know about you guys, but I think, again, other than the team that went 7-6 and six his first year, I think you can make a very strong case that this was the worst team at, at Alabama that he's ever coached. Worst team, best coaching job. Simple as that, uh, yeah. because you know you you tend to see Nick Saban be a taskmaster, and he will light everybody up uh, when things are not going well. But if you go back and look at the press conference for the USF game, he was talking about, oh, what a great win it was to overcome adversity on the road. Normally, he'd be up somebody's tailpipe in the press conference. You know, really challenging the manhood of his entire team. But it's no. funny you mentioned USF, Ed, because USF went on to have a decent season. Yes, yes. And they they held him in check because Alabama really hadn't found out who they were. And Jalen Milrow had not gotten into the process of developing over the course of the season like he did. Because Jalen Milrow in the Texas game versus Jalen Milrow, you know, in that semifinal game – Two completely different quarterbacks. I'm seeing a lot of, and stop me if I'm overstating this, I'm seeing the very early stages of like a Vince Young type quarterback out of Jalen Milrow. You know, if you think I'm kind of goofy in saying that, I see a lot of those same character traits out of him, you know, both on and off the field, you know, through that time being in college. Now, but Matthew, I wanted to go back to a point that you had mentioned about the special teams. Special teams is that is an operational piece of any football team. There should be zero issue, 
you know, with an op, a true just operational piece. You know, you can have your offense and defense, but the operation of setting up a kick, you know, punting, long snap, catching of catching a punt. Those are all operational things that have nothing to do with what the other team is doing. You need to be able to execute that, you know, and it just it's another one of those things that that part can get rusty when you have this month off in the calendar. I know we kind of harped on that before, but, you know, that's a total of 11 points if you look at it because that muff punt turned into an Alabama touchdown. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that plus the four extra points, that that's Michigan basically trying to give up the game and, you know, the offense kind of bailed them out on it. You know, the offense and defense bailed out the special teams because that special teams was just atrocious on all counts for that. Well, they got lucky because usually when an Alabama team is gifted something like that, they run with it. But it it, it reminds me in like basketball, a free throw. It's in the Mm -hmm. name, free throw. And those are things that should almost be a given. And same thing with special teams. We are human. That's why there's never been a single player in NBA history that is 100% from the line. You know, you, you can't all be Rick Berries and Steph Curry's where you are making your majority of them, rightfully so, but you are human. And yes, things do happen, but when it is so operational like that, it should be very, very small chances of it happening. And and they were great most pretty much the whole year. Uh, Michigan's uh, special teams was amazing most of the year. So yes, Rusk can have, you know, be a cause of that for sure. But it's just one of those things though, that especially when you're special teams, that's all you practice. You're not really out there being physical. It's you're practicing your long snap. You're practicing your holds. And that's about it. So it's, it's, yeah. Did you see Saban's team have any problems with special teams? No, because he completely drills the operational part to where they can't get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things, just like free throws, but that wasn't the only game, guys. That was not the only game. We had the Sugar Bowl, and that was, I know, Ed, from the Texas Longhorns and the Washington Huskies. And once again, we were spoiled as well. But this was the complete opposite of the first game. I mean, we saw scoring pretty much right off the bat. Well, I mean, Texas had their first drive, but uh, they did not score. But Washington just First couple plays, they're already right there in scoring position, and then they score. And you're like, I'm sure Ed's like, all right, well, there goes there goes the game. But no, uh, Texas fought back. They tied the game, and things were things were actually starting to click. I mean, for both teams. But the one thing that I saw that was the constant the whole game is Michael Penix is good, and he's really good, guys. And it's like there's no stopping him. The thing that I noticed as being an Oregon fan was try to pretty much what Michigan did to Jalen Milrow. Try to make him feel uncomfortable. When that pocket collapses, Michael Penix, you know, he he tends to not be the best when it, the pocket is collapsing. And yet he was able to make those plays. Uh, even if he sensed that the pocket was going to collapse, he was able to move out just enough to then make those plays. But when you have receivers like he does uh, – just throw the ball up there. It, 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 honestly, Romo Dunze, 
Um, Jalen Polk, McMillan. I mean, it, it is insane to see those receivers and the talent they have. It's almost like watching that an LSU game every week. You think these are college athletes? Well, they sure look like pros. This looks like an NFL type of wide receiver group, and it is awesome to see. And, I'm, and that's coming from an Oregon fan. It was amazing to see that. But Quinn Ewers and the Longhorns were not going to back down. And that's one thing that I love seeing was the Longhorns were like, all right, you want to have an offensive shootout? Let's have an offensive shootout. They were ready to throw down. And that's the response that you need. When your back's up against the wall and you're given that choice and you answer like that, that, that's total respect right there. So we were treated with this game, especially in the second half and, I mean, the fourth quarter. I I was shocked because in the Pac-12 championship game, this we were in the same situation as Texas. And we scored with like a minute something left. And, well, we needed to hold them. We needed to make sure they didn't get that first down. Well, we were not successful. Texas was. They had their timeouts. They held them. They got the ball back. And what did they do when they got the ball back? They marched right downfield like that. And we were like, wow, it's a six-point game right here. Texas can do this. And, man, I was I was pulling for them because the Interduck fan. I was pulling for Texas to do this. They marched it right down. Uh you know, last couple plays of the game, uh, you had um, Quinn Ewers. He was smart to roll out of the park at the second to last play of the game, threw the ball out. They said time ran out, but then there was a second left and just kind of had those shades of like the uh, the Alabama kick six game where it was like, just put one second on, just put one second on. And, and it, it they didn't have any timeouts, so they weren't able to really gather and maybe call for the best play, but – a one-on-one uh, in the back of the end zone to Mitchell. It, he's, he is one of those receivers that those 50-50 balls, he's kind of like a George Pickens uh, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, he could come down with those. But hats off to Washington. That defense, uh, they held him. They knocked the ball away, and that was the game. But we were spoiled, though. I know not so much for you, Ed, because you are a Longhorns fan, and I do, and I do feel your pain, but – as college football fans, we were spoiled, especially with how Texas was able to march down, and you were like thinking they could actually do this. They were just down two possessions. They got the field goal. They held them, and they're marching down. So in the end, though, Washington did pull out the victory, and I am very excited for this final matchup, and we are going to talk about that later this week. We're going to have another preview show, but – Washington guys, they're proving all the naysayers. They are letting you guys know we're undefeated for a reason, guys. We're meant to be here for a reason. And they've shown up in these games. Even if they've only won by one possession, guess what? There's still a win next to their record. There's not a loss. So they've shown that they could continue to do that, and they're fine with that because they're pulling out with the win. So, um, you know, David, it's – were you? How'd you feel about this game? Were you impressed with this Washington team? Were you also impre- impressed with Texas? What they were able to do with their back against the wall? Well, first of all, uh, let me just say a uh, shout out to uh, Michael Penix uh, repping the eight one three. You guys, you guys have already. <laughs> 
you you guys are already uh, know this, so you're probably sick and tired of, of me saying this. So this is this is for the people who don't know, who are just just tuning in and have never heard me uh, say this before. Um, there is a bit of, of, of a personal connection there. Uh, Penix's mom and my dad were uh, co-workers at one point, and while I've never met Penix himself, I I have met his mom. And she's a very, very uh, sweet woman. Um, so I'm happy for I'm happy for the entire Penix family because I'm sure there is no way in hell they thought their son would, uh, you know, would get this far. So for these playoffs only, I am a uh, Washington fan just because of that of that Tampa connection. And I know a lot of people here in Tampa are, are also pulling for uh, Washington, mainly because of uh, because of Penix. Um, you know, guys, when I'm watching this game, you, you want to know one. Uh, prominent thought I had in my head when I'm watching this. No wonder, no wonder Washington's offensive line won the Joe Moore Award. Like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't think Michael Penix got touched one time. And when I looked at the box score, I saw that Texas had like what two, two and a half tackles for loss, maybe. But and yeah, zero sacks. And I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think Penix got got hit once at all and ed as you know texas texas's d-line has some bulls on that line and washington washington's offensive line just completely uh dominated them like obviously Penix deserved the uh, offensive mvp of course but i would not have been opposed to giving the offensive mvp to that entire um offensive line and of course living on the east coast i don't get a chance to watch a lot of washington's games and I'm not trying to uh, diminish Penix's Penix's success at all. I think this game has uh, skyrocketed his uh, draft stock and deservedly so. But you look at that, and it's no wonder they've been able to put up incredible uh, passing numbers. And you know what? Um, shout out! I don't know if Kalen DeBoyer is the, uh, the the play caller for uh, Washington, but whoever the play caller for Washington is, uh, shout out to that guy for exploiting Texas's biggest weakness, which. Of course, as you know, Ed is is the secondary. You know, um, he <laughs> he did not waste uh, any time with that. Um, you know, with, with that whatsoever. And uh, you guys remember my uh, final score prediction was thirty seven to twenty eight, and I was so freaking close. I don't think I've ever gotten the final score prediction right. And Texas just had to uh, uh, kick the field goal there. Um, but just you know, one question, or not necessarily a question, but like one minor complaint that that I that I have is I've been seeing people on Twitter comparing the, you know, the quarterback performances of Alabama, Michigan to Texas, Washington saying that Alabama, Michigan was terrible. And then, you know, Texas, Washington was great. And I'm like, and Ed, you might not like what I'm, what I'm about to say, and that's fine. But like, I just got to think the hell are you lumping Quinn Ewers in there for? Like, yeah, I know his box score number was great. Quote unquote, but I'm sorry. The dude was not good at all. And, you know, he got all those numbers in desperation time, which I'm not trying to take take that away from him. Obviously, when your back is up up against the wall, you kind of have to go into uh, desperation mode. But don't let the numbers fool you. Like, all right, was he terrible? No, I won't say he was terrible. But Penix was just on a whole nother level. But I just don't think that Ewers' performance was – that impressive. Is that a hot take, Ed? It's a pretty hot take. However, I can understand where you're coming from on that. Uh, I also want to point out how many uh, pass blocks at the line of scrimmage 
Washington had of Quinn Ewers. You know, through the first quarter and a couple times in the fourth quarter, you saw just ball after ball being batted down or taken off course from where it should be off of Quinn Ewers' hand. Yeah, I don't remember. I I think Washington had like 10, 15 passes defended, something like that. Just a crazy amount of PDs. uh, It was nine total, but three of them came from Muhammad, and uh, there were five uh, that were at the line of scrimmage. So that is five throws to wide receivers who were getting frustrated by (laughs) – Texas wide receivers who were getting frustrated by not getting the ball, but yet somehow – they were supposed to run the ball more. I don't. I don't quite get that. But you know, we, I can have that discussion with anybody that wants to have that discussion. I think the game really turned when Jaden Blue fumbled the ball in the third quarter, and Washington just went turtle with the clock and just kept Texas off the field the entirety of the third quarter. Texas ran a total of five plays in the third quarter. That is insane. You are not going to be able to catch up and keep up with an offense that was flowing. It was flowing for Washington the way that it was. You know, and shout out to Michael Penix. He's got some kind of teleportation device to get out of the way of these, you know, these bulls, as you called them, uh, coming at him because they the Texas defensive line was getting frustrated because they were collapsing the pocket, but somehow he just disappeared. They, they were like grasping at straws and could not get their arms around Penix. And, you know, for that reason, they could not uh, get him to the ground. They could not collapse enough on him to – uh, throw off his timing. And when you've got, you know, Dylan Johnson, he's, he ran well enough to mm-hmm. keep the heat off, but you've got Odunze and Polk each with 120 plus yards each. Uh, and then McMillan. My biggest thing with the Washington wide receivers is the amount of stick them they have on their hands. Can we get these guys stripped <laughs> out? Because that was in that was nuts having every contested catch just fall right in a place where their hands would snatch onto it and there was nothing a Texas defender could do about no, it. No kidding. That, that also, was. And let me let me let me ask you this because I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, during the broadcast, um, I think they mentioned that Washington. Um, is the first team, I think, in the AP poll era or something like that to win like eight, nine, ten, whatever it is, uh, straight games by ten points or less. So, like, hearing that, was there was there this ling- lingering thought inside your head where you're thinking, okay, like, even if we um, make it close, we're probably still going to lose because this is exactly the kind of game that Washington plays and exactly the kind of game that Washington knows how to execute. I was hoping it would be something like the TCU thing from last year (laughs) because last year when TCU finally went down, they went down hard. And, you know, that's what I was expecting out of this game. You know, one of the issues that I talked about on the show is your continuity and rhythm on offense is 
constantly challenged when you have a month off to prepare for a bowl game. There was no hitch in the giddy-up for the Washington offense. In fact, at one point during the uh, during the game, and David, you may remember this, I asked the question, is this really the team that only beat Arizona State 15-7? to Yes. I mean, it was nuts having that fluid of an offense come out uh, versus what we saw just a couple of months ago where they struggled against one of the worst teams in an in FBS. It was it was crazy as far as that goes. Now with uh, the end of the game, you saw Adonai Mitchell just give me the ball. I need the ball. I will get you what you need. And they accommodated him with the one touchdown pass. You know, and that's what they were going back to because he had done it before on that final play. And I don't fault them for doing that whatsoever. But I, you know, and it showed tremendous maturity from Texas's uh, side to stay engaged in it when, uh, when they uh, went down by two scores uh, late, and you know they kept fighting, kept fighting, and unfortunately the injury to uh, Dylan Johnson kind of helped them out with the clock. Yeah. Uh, that's, I don't think that's got talked enough about, uh, you know, the fact that they could keep going and keep fighting uh, to the very end that shows a maturity of a team, but it does not show the experience of a team. Washington is the older team. They'd been there before they had beaten this Texas team in last year's Alamo bowl. They knew what to expect. And, you know, really took advantage of that part. Just like with the Michigan-Alabama game, Michigan's the older team. So they knew what to expect in that type of situation. You know, so those are uh, some of those things that, you know, kind of rattle around in my head. I'm sorry if I kind of bounce all over the place. But (laughs) overall, it was a great game to watch. And if you turn off the game too early, you miss something. And you miss something. And from what I hear on a, a couple of broadcasts, you missed a couple of somethings. Those that know, know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I want to add a disclaimer really quick to what David had said um, about Texas uh, secondary being uh, their weak spot. Well, every team's secondary is a weak spot when you're playing Michael Penix Jr. and that wide receiver core. I mean, I'm just telling the truth right now. You know, I – Every team wants to be that exception and finally beat Washington because, you know, they they have that strand of 10 points or fewer in winning. Every team wants to be that exception. I watched it with Oregon the first time we played them this year. Fourth and two, we had the ball to put them away, put that nail in the coffin. Guess what? We couldn't do it. And what did they do? They scored immediately and won the game. And then a second game against them, we actually went up. We were on a roll in the second half. We had a chance to go up, I want to say, almost three possessions, and we had to punt it. And I knew that very second when we had to punt it, I said, Washington's going to come back because that's who, they're, that's who they are. If you do not capitalize, they are going to make you pay, and they've done that to every single team this year, even if it is against that Arizona State team. And they are undefeated for a reason. But 
I this is gonna catch you guys off guard really quick. And 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 I want the audience, I want the fans to put this in the comments right now. But with the success we are seeing right now in college football, and it's draft day. Who are you picking, Michael Penning Jr. or Caleb Williams? I get the pros are different, and I get the ceilings are different, but do you think Michael Penning Jr. has done enough to really propel his draft stock to be on the same level as Caleb Williams? So I'm going to say I would still take Caleb Williams, and it's a it, it's an unfortunate thing. It's because of the injuries. He has had 10 surgeries in his college career, and it's it's just going to be more physical and more rough as you go into the NFL. Caleb Williams has not had that kind of issue, you know, and at that level, talent is going to be raised above. Mm-hmm. So I would still take Caleb Williams in that issue. But before we get to David, I want to raise a second question. And uh, David, you can answer both of them. If Washington had the USC symbol on the side of their helmet, would they have been ignored near as much as they have been? Absolutely not. Um, no, I, I, absolutely not. And it's funny that you uh, that you mention it, Ed, because like you know, when you think of the Pac-12, obviously USC is probably the first team that that comes to mind, and then Oregon as well. Washington doesn't get brought up that much, even though like. They they probably they probably should. I mean, they are more successful as a program overall than than Oregon is. Um, and then as for uh, as for Matthew's question, I will say Ed that I think you bring up a great point as far as the uh, you know in- injuries go. But just skill set aside, or yeah, you know, talking about skill set, I am one hundred percent taking a Penix. Now maybe I'm being biased there as as a Tampa guy, um, but but I would take. <laughs> But I would take Penix because of the way that he operates the pro style, like you know, so well with the way that Washington runs a pro style style offense. It seems to me like he is more ready for the NFL um, than Caleb Williams is. Now, I'm not saying Caleb Williams is not ready for the NFL. Caleb Williams probably will still be the number one pick, and I don't think that's going to be. Uh, I don't think it's going to be uh, crazy. But I think I think a big part of that is because. You know, USC has gotten – Caleb Williams has gotten a lot more exposure. I mean, he's in all these uh, Dr. Pepper Fansville commercials. <laughs> for, for the record, I find the Fansville commercials to be incredibly overrated. Some of them are hilarious, okay? But then there's others where I'm like, meh. But because of this exposure that Williams and therefore USC is, is getting, it's no wonder that Williams is being talked about as the favorite for the number one pick. Whereas with like – Washington and and Michael Penix, they kind of have more of that blue collar wor- uh, workers m- mentality. They're not they're not flashy. They're not in all, in all these commercials, but they don't give a rat's ass. Okay, they just want to do their job, and their job is winning football games. So yes, I understand the injury history uh, there, Ed, but I would absolutely take uh, Michael Penix over uh, Caleb Williams. Yeah, Michael. Michael Penix, or as uh, uh, some people have been saying, Michael Vick 2.0. And if you know what I'm talking about, you know how absurd that comment is. Look it up. But I want to talk about actually some other quarterbacks since we're on the topic of quarterbacks. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, one one last thing I just I just want to say. If you're if you're wondering if I'm hyping up Penix and Washington this much to compensate for the fact that I root for a, for a trash team, 
You're correct. <laughs> and my last point on Caleb Williams, I at this point, I do kind of see him being a Kyler Murray 2.0, but we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, only time will tell. So, I mean, we'll see who he gets drafted by too. But uh, like I was saying, uh, quarterbacks – uh, over this last weekend, we had some, you know, pretty big news when it came to uh, the remaining quarterbacks in the transfer portal. Some of the top ones out there. One of the biggest names that was out there was Cam Ward out of Washington State. We knew that he was not returning to Washington State. He entered into the transfer portal. It was ultimately where he was going to go. And a couple episodes ago, I talked about I think the perfect fit is Miami. And here's the thing: I still think the perfect fit is Miami. Ultimately, he decided he he is going to opt to go to the NFL. And I like Cam Ward, and I think he's a phenomenal player. I just don't think it's the right decision. Um, I get that he was being offered, you know, a million dollars, you know, NIL, wherever he goes, blah, blah, blah. But I think with the quarterbacks that are already going to be in this draft versus next year and the way Miami is heading, I think that he would have benefited to go to Miami. I think Miami was the right team by far. And it just would have been nice to see. But he he makes his own decisions and he decided he wants to go to the NFL. I wish him nothing but the best when it comes to that. But uh, it was between Miami or the NFL. And after some uh, days of reflection, he decided to go with the NFL. So I'll be interested to see where he goes there. Like I well, said, there is a lot of quarterbacks. Well, real real quick there, Matthew. I think it's possible that he still might come back to college because, correct me if I am wrong here, I don't think the dude has hired an agent, at, le- at least not yet. Yeah, I, I want to say I did see a report on that as far as the agent goes. But I, I think he still made that decision of going he'll still have to hire an agent but um i'll we'll have to pay attention more to that but it sounds like that's where he is heading is the nfl draft versus staying in college football but anything could still happen so uh we'll we'll wait on that more there's a difference between announcement and filing the paperwork yeah Uh, just like just like a, a recruiting like you know make my verbal commit to go to uh uh, Washington, but then I'm going to flip and go elsewhere because I never signed my letter of intent. You know how that works. But uh, so we'll, we'll pay attention more to that. But as of now, his intention is to go to the NFL. Um, I would like to see him kind of change his mind and go to Miami. I think uh, that would be big, especially because this next quarterback was narrowing it down to Florida State or Miami. And well, David, what quarterback am I talking about? Where did he decide to go? DJU. Listen, first of all, it's not surprising whatsoever that he left or Oregon State. And I'm very sorry for Oregon State fans, but like right now, that program has no future. You guys don't don't even have a conference right now. So obviously, I don't think anybody can blame uh, DJU for uh, for uh, transferring there. And then I don't think you can be surprised by the destination that he chose in, in Tallahassee. Because what team has utilized the transfer portal better than any other team for the past few years. It is, you know, Florida State. You look at Jordan Travis and the way that he was able to develop under Mike Norvell. Well, let's not forget that Jordan Travis was also a a, a transfer uh, from Virginia Tech, I believe. Um, so I think, I think DJ, DJU is looking at a situation here where, okay, this is a team that 
you know, that has been great with the transfer portal. Their best players absolutely have been transfer players. Jordan Travis, uh, Keon Coleman, Jared Verse, who's on, on defense, I get it, but the point, you know, the point, point still stands. Clearly, they know what they're doing in the transfer portal. So let me let me go there. And also, I was a former uh, five-star recruit. I put up decent numbers at Oregon State. Maybe not great. Certainly not eye-popping numbers. But I have put up decent numbers at Oregon State. So let me go to a place where I know my skills and talent are, are going to be uh, elevated. So uh, – I don't think anybody should be surprised uh, whatsoever that DJU, um, you know, picked Florida State. And obviously, as a Gator fan, I'm happy for him as an athlete, but I hate it because I think I think Mike Norvell is going to un- unlock a, a potential out of him that that we haven't seen yet that Clemson um, and Oregon State weren't able to uh, get out of him. Ed, yeah, I uh, I think he has definitely got a uh, future with Florida State you know, taking over that Jordan Travis type of mentality, you know, and he's got the experience, he's got the maturity to do so. You know, it's a question to see if he's going to have the weapons to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because Jordan Travis, he's had Keon Coleman, he's had that whole stable of, you know, hosses around him after what happened with the college football playoffs. Uh, Is Florida State going to be able to maintain getting the talent around the quarterback the way that they had before this this whole thing went down. Yeah, I mean, no one needed this more than Florida State. With how things were actually unfolding, things weren't looking the best for Florida State. They lost you know, their backup quarterback to the transfer portal. So it, they weren't going to bring in Brock Glenn to be their starter next year. I'm just saying what it is. He's not their guy. And they lost the number one recruit. You know, they lost the number one receiver, the number one recruit to Georgia. So things were just not looking the best for them as of late. But to get someone like him, I think they needed this more than anything. Not saying that DJU is going to be the best quarterback out there this next year, but they needed that because things weren't looking the best for them. KJ Bolden's a safety. I think he... Yeah. No, you're good. I, I get what you mean because I, I think Bolden has maybe played some some snaps at receivers, which let's be honest, if you're a high school football player, you're playing all the snaps at all the positions, but his yeah. his primary position was uh, is safety. Yeah, I mean, not everyone could be um, uh, Travis Hunters, but, you know, yeah. they but still they did lose the number one recruit and things just weren't looking the best. Yeah, and speaking of famous KJs, <coughs> I, I want to uh, touch on KJ Jefferson. Uh, going to UCF, you know, just a just a little ways down the road for for my man down there in Florida, just, bro. Just when I thought UCF might be maybe guaranteed it's too strong of a war, but just when I thought, hey, maybe we might, maybe we could beat UCF. Like that could be one of the teams on our tough schedule that we could beat. KJ transfers there. <laughs> Thank you, football gods. Yes, Saturday, October fifth. We're looking forward to it. Yep. Uh, <laughs> And I, I got to tell you, KJ Jefferson did not go to UCF to play that schedule because, you know, I'm just sitting here looking at it and you're talking a stretch uh, that they've got, they're going to TCU, that it's going to be on the rebound after a disappointing season, uh, after coming off the playoff the year before. The Arizona Wildcats, which they are definitely on the come up. BYU, definitely on the come up. Utah Utes with Cam Rising back, 
They he definitely did not sign up for Dude. that schedule. Will Cam Rising just freaking graduate already? Okay, <laughs> I get caught. Like I had a blast in college. My college experience w- was was great. Okay, but at some point you have to move on. Like this is ridiculous, man. Well, not to mention they're also going to be playing Colorado. That's going to have another turnover of transfer <laughs> uh, transfer portal madness. Yeah. But you know, overall, KJ Jefferson's actually a really good fit for. Gus Malzahn's offense. You know, he is that dual threat, big bodied, going to be tough to take him down type of quarterback. The biggest thing that I'm looking forward to on it is are they going to use KJ Jefferson to be the entire running game? Because that appears to be what Arkansas tried to do, and it just wore him out, and they could not play down the stretch. You know, you know, for the Four years that he was at Arkansas, his numbers got better and better and better, but they were overusing him because of a lack of talent they had on the outside and trying to run everything through him and Rocket Sanders. Well, that that only goes you so far when you're a quarterback that's trying to throw the ball. You know, you can only run Q power so many times. You can only run jet sweep to Rocket Sanders so many times before everybody catches on to you, and you wind up missing a ball game. Oh wait, they did. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, so this is going to be. I think this is going to be KJ Jefferson's best opportunity to develop enough to play pro ball after college. I'm I'm still wary of him going to the NFL. He's a great talent. He's a great. Uh, you know, a great skill set, but he's got some developing to do. And Gus Malzahn's somebody that can give him some development. And then we'll see where he goes from there. Hey, just out of curiosity, has Rocket Sanders chosen his uh, transfer destination yet? Because I'm pretty sure he entered the transfer portal. Haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah. Just wondering. Same. But yeah, I'm happy for KJ. Um, I really am interested to see how he does down there uh, with Gus. And like you said, that schedule, um, it's not like it's going to be a, a walk in the park like the Liberty Flame schedule. I mean, this is going to be oh. a different story. And but I, I, I'm happy for KJ. I uh, want to see if this opportunity really does help him help maybe increase that draft stock someday. But uh, only time will tell there. But Transfer portal, guys, it's alive and well. Uh, it's something that's just going to continue to keep going. Uh, they are going to have to probably make some changes here soon. Um, and when they do, we'll be the first to report it and let you guys know just kind of what's going on. But uh, that's about all the time we have today, though, folks. We appreciate you guys tuning in. Uh, please hit that like, that subscribe button, share these videos, comment. Let us know how you guys felt about the Alabama-Michigan game, the Texas-Washington game, and uh, let us know on Kirk Herbstreit's comments. Uh, Rose Bowl, he thinks, should be the national championship game every year. He may have a point, guys, but I want to hear what you guys have to say when it comes to that. There, there's, there's nothing like them all. It's the granddaddy of them all for a reason, so – but yeah, we appreciate you guys' support and uh, you know, we're going to continue to give you everything that we got, guys. But until next time, guys, we are round and third and we are headed for home.